right, so welcome to the second episode of Far Left in Texas. This time I'm going to take up a couple of movies from uh, more than a century ago. I think that this might be part of the running theme here that I will watch and listen to and read racist uh, artifacts so you don't have to. In fact, I'm almost always on the hunt for artifacts purportedly designed to promote patriotism and loyalty to an abstract concept. Um, America, in many cases, but the thing that really, the real gems are those to me that um, are specifically about Texas. And um, I argue that we need to take these things very seriously, not that we, we should revere them in any way. We absolutely should not. But there's a lot to satiric reading, satirical readings of these things. They're funny and painful. And re um, satire is, uh, was, uh, according to Daniel uh, Fuentes, a uh, revolutionary act. The rev she calls it revolutionary laughter. Um, there's not a lot to laugh at here, but it is one that, um, as a rhetorician, I'm committed to taking things up rhetorically. How is this functioning within the uh, uh, narratives that conflate patriotism with white supremacy? And the film that we're talking about today is perhaps the most famous for that. Um, this week, right now, um, two D.W. Griffith films, both blockbusters, one very well known by many as probably the most famous film in history of films, the one that helped uh, renew um, American fervor for the KKK. That one's the birth of of the nation of a nation, which is um, based on the Dixon novel, The Klansman. And then that year, uh, lesser known, he published The Birth of Texas. And that one, of course, is about the Alamo. One of the titles is Martyr Martyrs at the Alamo. So I'm going to talk about both first. Birth of the Nation. Um, and then I'm going to talk about the birth of Texas. And then finally, I'm going to turn to um, interview that um, Griffith uh, did about his own personal history um, and uh, allegiance to the Confederacy. At one point, he's given a uh, a sword, a real life Confederate soldier sword that um, he got teared up about. Um, so that's the order I'm going to go in. Um, so I'm going to start just to set the scene. This is 1915. This is um, The Birth of a Nation is an extraordinarily popular film. Technically and artistically, it's a little bit amazing, which makes it all the more dangerous, I think. And that's true with The Birth of Texas as well. These are well-funded movies that really um, do 
that are that are marked as important moments in cinematic history, but also culturally and um, historically, because they represent a thing. They don't. They didn't make the thing. They helped the thing along. KKK's renewal, but they didn't create white supremacy or racism or the legacy of chattel slavery or um, any of, of that. So to set the tone, I'm going to play the first part. It's a silent film, so I'm going to have to narrate it for you. Um, and I absolutely don't mind that at all. That's going to be a fun part. So here we come. The masterpiece of racist cinema from 1915. It's interesting that they're establishing the... Um, template for blockbuster films. He got $110,000 to make this, which is extraordinary, way more than this is ever seen. It says Griffith feature films produced exclusively by D.W. Griffith. And then he's asking the audience to treat this property with some pretty serious rules. Um, we are before the um, kind of changeover with copyright protections and he's calling it a trademark of the Griffith feature films. And he says that the way that it looks, he's got the trademark um, logo. It says Griffith at the top in signature and it's DG at the bottom. And this part, a plea for the art of the motion picture. We do not fear censorship for we have no wish to offend with improprieties or obscenities, but we do demand as a right the liberty to show the dark side of wrong that we may eliminate the bright side of virtue, the same liberty that is conceded to the art of the written word, that of art, that art to which we give the Bible and also Shakespeare. So here we go. We are introducing the film. The Birth of a Nation, adapted from Thomas Dixon's novel, The Klansman, 1915. We're interested, inter, introduced to the first two um, families. Uh, the first part, uh, Stoneman's mulatto housekeeper. We've got an elder sister. Um, we're introduced to the two families. There's uh, one from the north and one from the south. I'm going to focus mainly on what happens from Reconstruction on um we've got a renegade negro probably the only one that's named it's a white man in blackface and we've got abraham lincoln act two begins after abraham lincoln is shot The other family is the Camerons. Um, so we've got the um, sons in the family. And then the Camerons have Mammy, the faithful servant, also in blackface. If this work we have conveyed to the mind the ravages of the war to the end, that may, the war may be held in abhorrence, this effect will not have been in vain. War may be held in abhorrence, this effort will not be in vain. The bringing of the African to America planted the first seed of disunion. And here we have an extraordinary scene um, of slaves at the auction wearing polka dot shorts, um, somebody holding a whip. 
and then it fades out. The abolitionists of the 19th century demanding the freeing of the slaves. And here we have a bunch of apparently numbskulls who don't know what they're doing, who are fighting unbeknownst with this, uh, for uh, the freedom of these people that I think he believes shouldn't be free. I know that um, it's in sort of a small town hall. I think that might be an African-American child, not in blackface. Um, in 1860, a great parliamentary leader whom we shall call Austin Stoneman was rising to power in the National House of Representatives. We find him with his young daughter, Elsie, in her apartments in Washington. I'm going to stop there um, for a minute because I'm going to focus mainly on the reconstruction part. So um, here we have in the birth of nation, the fight for the American way of life took place in the context of this post-war reconstruction era. That's the second half of the film in act two. As a staunch defender of the Confederacy and son of a Confederate soldier, Griffin, Griffith was excruciatingly and uncompromisingly loyal to the very idea of that South shall rise again notion. This stated and uh, direct conflict as he just expressed, formerly enslaved men were voting and they had neither the, in his um, argument and the way he portrays it, they had neither the country's best interest at heart nor the wherewithal to, uh, to do so. They've been duped by the radical Republican carpetbaggers and, uh, that voted for other enslaved men into office who we can see um, definitely don't belong there, according to Griffith and the way this show goes. As always, and has been the case um, in uh, uh, early renditions of these redemptionist narratives about Reconstruction and the legacy of slavery, the precipitating moment at, uh, that started these events in action was a rape between a black man uh, is depicted as uh, brutally raping a lovely um a uh, wisp of a woman with the Clara bow, you know, facing clearly this black and white, but blonde, curly locks, um, almost childlike, um, maybe a late teenager, could be a young adult, but not seeming so. Definitely somebody that it seems necessary to protect. And so our strong heroes do that. Um, there's the rape. And then uh, the... Um, uh, purported uh, rapist escapes and meanwhile the um, the white heroes are entering the scene the war is ended we're in the midst of reconstruction chaos is reigning according to the film um, and uh, in this case despite what the arguments have been in the interim um, starting even uh, with Black Reconstruction the W.B. Du Bois book um, uh that challenges this Dunning school of, of the way the reconstruction has been interpreted. Um, and uh, one in Texas, the, um, the folklorist and public historian and activist um, that I'm going to talk about a lot as we go, because I'm working on a biography. He's a Texas African-American um, uh, activist who has been kind of forgotten, a loss to history, um, who um, wrote and published this the very same year Du Bois published his seminal book, Black Reconstruction, that explained, you know, 
that it wasn't a mistake. In fact, it was a moment that we could have done something and we didn't. Um, then we had the second reconstruction and that didn't quite um, hold up to its promise either. And so now we're in the midst of the third reconstruction, something that neither Du Bois or, um, or Jamie Brewer, I would argue, would um, be surprised at and hope that we get it right this time as we had that promise the first time around. But this does not seem a promise for D.W. Griffith um, and his ilk. So we have the rape, um, uh, so-called rape, I mean, the, the precipitating event in a lot of the lynchings and so forth, whether or not it really happened, which most often it didn't. Um, as we know, this was a form of control. And um, so we have the next scene. We are on the Senate floor um, in Washington, D.C. It's almost like a circus um, in its portrayal filled with these incredibly vile racist stereotypes, any that he could pack into the frame, panning back and forth so we can take it all in. Uh, uh, several African-American white actors in blackface are um, just meandering around. Um, no one appears to be working. Um, this was... There's a handful of recently elected um, senators... Uh, in blackface, um, one of uh, several of them are passing a comically large um, whiskey bottle back and forth. Uh, another is leaning over his tiny desk um, with a huge plate of an entire chicken, fried chicken in front of him. Fried, of course, because of the stereotype and he's holding a drumstick in both hands and his entire face appears to be covered with grease. A couple more. Um, uh, I mean, let's just guess what's next. Yeah, you got it. Um, they're um, eating watermelon slices, spitting seeds on the floor. And no one's wearing shoes. Um, in the last shot we have this scene, a man is uh, with both his feet on the desk, picks at his toes. Um, reconstruction is, of course, depicted in this pure caricature, um, painful kind of version of this hapless villain who's at the root of all evil. And then the KKK rides in. This is the symbol of patriotism, the uncompromising white, always white heroes that save uh, and offers a healing restorative force to the order of the and the chaos of the lawlessness of Reconstruction. That story, he says, began with um, the um, abolitionists who um, had no idea what they were unleashing or maybe they just didn't care in this narrative. It doesn't matter. They're just... Um, uh, uh, serve to propel the action. They're not actors themselves. I mean, they are actors, but uh, they don't actually act on the action of the plot in any meaningful way. So any good uh, rhetorical analysis um, will take the public perception into account. And this one has had extraordinary um, uh, response, both in real time and also in the interim. At the moment, it was praised by filmgoers. They had never seen anything like it. The, the thrilling battle scenes with multiple cameras and some new techniques, the shots that, I mean, it is really quite beautiful. Um, and it was condemned at the time, though often we think, well, we're the ones who recognize that this is a racist, hateful film and people who did wouldn't have rallied. That's untrue. It's as early as 1915. 
and um, it was also massively condemned. There were a lot of moments of direct action, um, massive demonstrations, especially in Boston, trying to get that movie to not be screened there. They did lose that, but they condemned it. Um, uh, the demonstrations took place all over Boston and Massachusetts. NAACP was um, a leading force in partnership with some local organizations and leaders that took place in courtrooms and city halls and on the street and um, everywhere else where you'd expect it. Um, it did include some uh, violence. There was some police um, pushback, as one would expect. And in fact, a lot of these direct action civil rights strategies have been credited as like early models for the uh, strategies that were taken up in the in the second reconstruction, that era we're more uh, commonly known as the civil rights era. But the resistance didn't stop the film. It ended up playing across the nation anyway, um, which was an uncommon feat too. It did, however, galvanize the civil rights movement of the early 20th century. And it, I mean, going all the way back to this 1915s and exposed in no uncertain terms, the movie's bigoted and biased threat of historical uh, treatment of historical events and people, those that had no basis in truth and only served to perpetuate hate, um, white supremacy, the um, depiction of, of a black inferiority, 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 those things that redeemed um, the South and its cause because um, look what what happens when we allow freedom and we don't disenfranchise black voters, say. D.W. Griffith and the filmmakers and those of his ilk. So it strengthened the commitment of white supremacy and the redemption narrative of the Confederacy and chattel slavery. On the other side, it also revived, and that's my dog snoring behind me, um, it also revived KKK, which had been in full force um, during the Reconstruction era and then sort of dissolved uh, in its violence um, after it had fully um, served its purpose by disenfranchising and terrorizing voters and so forth. But it renewed that uh, focus, that in its partnership with its, um, its as an adaptation of a very, very popular trilogy called the Reconstruction Trilogy that had been published about a decade earlier by Dixon, the person who was credited as a professional racist and actually bringing forward the term of white supremacy, not in an ironic way, not in a pejorative way, but like we are supreme as whiteness. So um, it also revived the KKK. <laughs> um, um, the first cross burning of this new revived KKK took place not, not in Georgia at that, um, uh, at Stone Mountain, um, the first cross burning and the new iteration of the KKK. In film history, it has been seen, as I said, as a landmark work in cinema. The Library of Congress um, actually classified as a culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant film, one of those, the most produced in the U.S. It got selected in 1992 for, to, for preservation in the National Film Registry. I hate the film. Of course I do. But I hate way more what it re represents and perpetuates far more. That's the dangerous bit. The redemption narrative mesmerized uh, by the film, uh, this portrayal, this lost cause version of events, 
that existed with or without the film. The redemption, uh, the ref, uh, the problem with the idea of us not taking this seriously falls under the category, I would argue, of the, um, of the Reformation narrative. That is not to redeem us but or excuse us, but to like root out the few bad apples. Um, by that um, token, uh, that colorblind version of, you know, um, root out the racist individuals, not understand and um, uh, reconstruct the racist systems. If we erase that, if we get rid of that and um, without adding context to it, then the birth of a nation is then treated just like the election of Trump as an, anom an, as an anomaly, as an exception, um, where uh, the reconstructionists would suggest that the way the slaveocracy is unfolded in history of this country would suggest that these kinds of things are features, not bugs, of, of the way um, we have uh, th that this American experience has unfolded um, uh, so far removed from the ideals that we could all get behind um, whether or not they serve. So it would be a mistake um, to bury it um, and to forget it because that serves the redemptionists, right? Um, Reconstructionists would argue that um, that um, it actually doing that actually further um, strengthens this white supremacy as an organizing force, that slaveocracy, as I mentioned. However, a truthful account, this is hard history, and um, this uh, truthful account is rarely, if ever, set outright in popular texts that promote a version of patriotism that's blind and uh, for, uh, fervently devoted to the status quo. That's kind of the running uh, thing for this far left in Texas that I'm wanting to look at and, and uh, take up. Um, we have to um, take these, as I said, seriously, take these artifacts seriously as reflections of how mainstream society uh, thought about and acted upon and uh, reacted to this idea of, of this shared fiction of white supremacy in American history. And, and that to be um, beholden to this notion of patriotism is not about race when it has to be about race if you don't pay attention to race, which is the Reconstructionist view. If we preserve and study this artifact and others like it critically, I argue, we have to recognize how, how well regarded and ubiquitous this film was at the year of its release, for sure, it was three hours long. Nothing had been like that. It attained national distribution. Nothing had been like that. It was seen by three million people with a much um, reverence. And then importantly and famously, one screening site and audience um, uh, member by itself, if nothing else happened with this film, um, makes it an important historical artifact that it was... Um, screened at the White House by the invitation of then-President uh, Woodrow Wilson. Um, that one that he said famously, the film, Griffith's film, was like writing history with lightning. History that's written with lightning, clearly agreeing with Griffith that this portrayal of the events as they unfolded in this film were 
truthful, despite the fact that he was seeing the resistance, despite the fact that he is sometimes marked as a moderate and a progressive and an interesting um, placement in the conservative document that sort of uh, that I'm obsessed with to that 1776 project that um, was a response to the New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning 1619 project and then our own in Texas uh, 1836 project, all of those about patriotic education. So writing history with lightning, history, not a fiction, not a um, potential problem and um, problematic event uh, treatment, but the president at the time was talking about this as being history that's right and true and to, and to be defended by true patriots. All right, so now I'm going to move on to the next one, um, The Birth of Texas. And so here's the other one, The Birth of Texas. Um, it was not about the KKK, of course. This was many years before, but it was definitely a version, I would argue, of this uh, redemption narrative as patriotic and good, the good guys against the bad guys. Importantly, too, this is um, part of the story that is celebrated in um, um, a bit more subtle ways in this Griffith feature more than 100 years ago. Um, and it is certainly not a version of uh, events that I was privy to. That is Texas as we are, um, Texas um, conservatives are going nuts um, since the publication of the um, uh, book, um, Forget the Alamo, which is just a really rich um, and um, uh, critical, um, but um, well-researched um, I mean, critical means researched and deeply now analyzed um, study of the um, of the history and the creation of the cultural mythology through things like um, uh, uh, some of the artifacts that I'm going to go through. Um, John Wayne's um, movie on the Alamo, which he always wanted to create, and which didn't go as well as he'd hoped. So the argument um, that we're seeing um, as as news comes out about this 1836 project was uh, that it was always about slavery, um, that um, Stephen F. Austin's uh, father was um, given a grant to bring 300 families to the territory that we now know as Texas. Um, he recruited, um, they became a Mexican empresario, which meant that he could do this recruitment, um, that in order to, um, make this happen though, um, there would have to be room made around the law of the anti-slavery law that was, um, and sentiment that was at the heart of, of um, Mexican Mexico at the time for sure way ahead of us uh he argued that, that it could not be settled with pos at all with um without this uh these uh without chattel slavery um there was a lot of wilderness to be undone there were a lot of of um people already here to be um 
uh, forced out um, through genocide and so forth. Um, and cotton is a very labor intensive crop, as we know. Um, and we very quickly, according to the seeds of, of capital, we like, I mean, grew so fast. But backing up under, um, as part of Mexico, uh, we were, wait, I'm going to say we because I live here, but um, white um, Americans that were brought in um, first with Stephen F. Austin and, um, you know, quadruple the population of, of um, enslaved men and women and children. Um, they were uh, given this leeway um, because the desire was for this part to be settled um, and uh, to kind of be set up for um, um, settling from um, Mexican uh, citizens as well. Um, but so they did their thing. <laughs> but there was always a threat of some kind that um, they would have um, their, the slaveocracy shut down and um, they weren't really into that idea. So part of being given this land um, through the grant uh, that uh, Stephen F. Austin inherited when his father died, um, this project, uh, was that they wouldn't have to pay taxes for 10 years. So there they get the free land, they get the, they kind of bend the rules for, um, for these um uh, American settlers, white settlers who come in to, um, quote unquote, settle Texas, not conquer and um, colonize Texas. So they they settle or conquer, or colonize, um, make their way into this Brazos and Colorado region it happens in 1824. And then um, the pushback, um, because, um, you know, it's just not it's just not going well for um, uh, Texas. And so they fought to preserve the slaveocracy. Um, this was the Texas War of Independence. 1836 uh, is when Texas marks its beginning. It was that moment that, of, at the Battle of the Alamo and the Battle of, of um, Goliad when uh, Tex the Texas Revolt um, uh, or the Texas Revolution, uh, depending on which side of the coin you are, um, won or stole um, their independence from uh, Mexico and became the Republic of Texas. Got our own flag, that Lone Star flag that um, is now still our obsession in Texas. If you've ever been here, um, there are stars everywhere, big single stars. Um, we're obsessed with this Lone Star notion um, here. It's a major symbol and it comes from this birth moment, this creation mythology that began at the Alamo, which we need to remember um, according to this. And birth of Texas for sure buys into that, except that as I learned from Forget the Alamo, that this didn't become immediately the symbol of, of uh, that it would become. It wasn't the sacred moment that all of these kind of battles were bundled together as the origin story of um, this creation myth. Um, it was 
not that much later before it became the Alamo. And by the time that Griffith is making this movie, we were certainly in the zone. So um, it's not about KKK. It's about the redemption um, version. It is about the slaveocracy. It's about good guys and it's about bad guys. It's white actors this time in brown face instead of black face, except that there is one super faithful slave represented um, uh, at the side of, of Travis the entire time, um, who I guess to demarcate the difference between the slaves uh, you know, the um, enslaved person um, who is the faithful servant and the um, drunken, um, violent um, animals um, in Mexican um, uh, soldier uniforms that made up the rest of the cast is like just a mob. We've got the um, ragtag crew of, of our heroes, um, the usual suspects, William B. Travis and James Bowie, who led the Texas rebels. Um, uh, and uh, then one of the key um, fighters in this storyline um, that we like so much as part of the creation myth, the famed uh, Davy Crockett, who was... Um, all of these people were deeply flawed um, and uh, came from some were running from alimony. Some were kind of uh, all three of these people um, and also Stephen F. Austin kind of uh, running um, from their alcoholism and running from debtors and so forth. So, but in this depiction and those that the um, right is trying so desperately to defend um Davy Crockett is a hero. Bowie has his knife. Um, uh, William Travis's letter shows up, um, the famous one, which I'll talk about. We also have um, these, um, as I said, uh, those uh, white rebels who held truth and justice and um, the, um, the good, virtuous way in their hearts and their souls and in their uh, notion of courage to defend their what would be the Texas way of life that's not at all that different from the patriotic uh, celebration at the natural national level that we see, um, you know, that I'm arguing has a deep relationship to white supremacy and undeniable and inextricable. It's only one hour long, um, as opposed to three hours long. Thank God. But um, uh, there's a lot that can be um, drawn from, pulled from. So um, I'm going to show you, talk about a little bit about some of the title cards. We're going to open it up and then I will um, finish, finish up with this interview uh, with, with Griffith. All right, the track starts um, a lot less. Um, we got it foreboding. Um, a historical drama suggested by the crisis in Mexico in 1835 to 1836 and the immortal fall of the Alamone, which ultimately resulted in Texas becoming an independent republic and later the largest state of our union and the story arrangement and so forth. The immediate, the immediate cause of the Texas Revolution, 
Let's be very subtle. Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna, uh, elected president of Mexico in 1833, was shortly declared dictator by his army, ignoring the Constitution of Mexico of 1824, which provided for a Republican forum. Liberty-loving Americans who had built up the Texas colony were denied their rights by Santa Anna. They demanded that Mexico should return to the Constitution of 1824 and that Texas should have a state government. Santa Ana crossed the border to crush this dangerous spirit of revolution. But Santa Ana had failed to reckon with the undaunted valor of the hardy American pioneers of that age, an age that wrote large on the pages of history the names of Crockett, Bowie, Travis, Dickinson, Houston, and uh, silent in quotation Mark Smith. Santa Ana's quarters near San Antonio, Texas, inside the Chapel of the Alamo, a former Spanish mission converted into a fortress, a settler's refuge in case of hostility. Despotic in vain, he was called the Napoleon of the West and aped the great French emperor even to his dress. And then we have the characters um, being, all right, we are opening up on a scene um, with the soldiers around the outside of the room. It almost depicts um, uh, uh, one of these moments and these uh, Nazi uh, Germany uh, films with Hitler at the center. In the back is a picture of a uh, bird, I guess a swan, I don't know, but it almost feels like there's a swastika back there. These are definitely and clearly the bad guys. And then they leave. Um, right now they look a lot like um, toy soldiers or those nutcrackers, um, but these are the baddies. And the music tells us that. It's interesting that it starts just with a few title cards um, and just moves straight into the story, quote unquote. All right, this is our first picture of Santa Ana. He is um, looking crazy. In San Antonio, under the dictator's rule, the honor and life of American womanhood was held in contempt. Continued insults of Santa Ana's troops caused constant rebellion among the few co American colonists, the ones that uh, Bowie brought in. All right, the very first scene is a bunch of, of uh, Mexican soldiers rolling around absolutely and completely drunk and also dancing. An Irish patriot of the War of 1812. This is a major um, uh, figure, and this is, um, I think, the grandfather uh, of the um, damsel in distress who is going to become the rape victim, because we have to have one of those in this as well. Um, all right, they are um, yeah, bullying them as, this, as though they, they had just walked through uh, high school um, hallway, and now the furry-hatted Davy Crockett, who I think is either the girlfriend or um, the husband or the boyfriend of the um, damsel in distress. We have um, mock. Um, oh, boy. Now we see the first moment of the tension. The Mexican soldier touches um, the girl's hair. The music kicks up. Um, she's trying to calm her grandfather down, who's very feeble, but very feisty. Memories of the days when the stars and stripes gave them the right to protection. This is what our title card says now. And the very next scene, she's holding the flag. And he is just, 
he is literally wrapping himself in it. I mean, literally. They're clutching it. They look longingly at each other. He clutches his heart and he cries and she holds him and he kisses the flag. That literally happened. In these historic times, no man worked more for the cause of independence than the famous guide and spy, Silent Smith. And then Silent Smith and his um, son, DeGrasse, is the name of the actor. Here he comes also in a fur hat. There are so many fur hats in this, in Texas, folks, in Texas. And back to the scene of the drunken um, dancing Mexican soldiers. The wife of Lieutenant A.M. Dickinson, annoyed by a petty officer of the garrison. And he comes back and here they are taunting this poor woman again. And this guy holds, grabs her and um, pulls him to her and she pushes him off and the guys taunt him and he walks away. Now uh, these guys in brown face are, um, have pushed him to the brink of frustration. He's going to um, get this woman because um, he's been embarrassed by, oh, he, she slapped him after that advance too. She's back in her house now. He is frustrated. Chivalrous Tennessean blood was up. Lieutenant Dickinson threatened to avenge the insult by making an example of the offender. Lieutenant Dickinson is introduced as Fred um, uh, Dunes. He's wearing a crazy hat. He's a very tall, lanky guy um, and long hair. And he hears the story and he wants to get the Mexican soldier, but his uh, wife knows that this dude's going to get it if he tries that. He looks for the guy and decides against it because, you know, he'll die or he'll know he's going to start the fight. They're not ready to fight. Now, another woman holding a baby is taunted. She's going to feature later in the film. And there she is again at the door, asking him, begging him not to fight back. He says, OK. He goes over to the corner. No, he's he's going to uh, do something. He is filling his gun with bullets. And his wife is saying, please don't do that. I beg of you. She's holding um, the door back. She tries to play. He smiles. He pushes her away from the door gently. He says, I think essentially, what do you want me to do? He pats her shoulder. It's going to be okay. She walks to the corner. She holds him again as he opens the door and she gives up and he pulls away and he was smiling and now he no longer is. And for some reason he pulls that gun out of his um, belt and puts it under his armpit. Here they are still drunk and um, taunting everyone who comes by. Now they laugh to the point of slapping their knees, literally. And this dude comes around the corner. He's going to avenge, avenge, avenge. No one, it's very much looks like the scene on the floor of the uh, Senate with the, um, in reconstruction. He sneaks his gun past. Now we have a bunch of guys wearing sombreros um, also drunken. Now he um, is just taller than all of them. And um, he stands his ground that they say, ah, you're not worth it, I guess. And here comes the dude that um, I guess he called to this here moment because he was going to, and he avenged her. He shot the guy, he falls. And now the soldiers grab him. He shoves them off. 
And now there's toy looking soldiers come next to him either side. They've got their guns on their shoulders. He's under arrest. Brought to the Alamo before Santa Ana, who was awaiting other excuses to provoke the Americans. And we're back. And this um, goofball, uh, uh, Santa Ana, is sitting there um, trying to look important. Um, now he's just getting all revved up. His um, face paint is almost um, slipping off. Um, it's definitely glistening. And it's definitely a white guy under there. He's wearing his white gloves. As a result, Santa Ana decreed that all Americans must be disarmed and surrender all weapons of war. All right, now let's get ready for the Alamo. All right, he's given him the decree. I'm going to read one more um, title card, and then we're going to... Meanwhile, James Bowie and Davy Crockett uh, resolved to stand by the cause, waited with the other patriots uh, the next move of Santa Ana. At this point is where we get to see their um, trademark Bowie knife, and um, and uh, we see them hide the guns, and then we're at the Alamo. So I will wrap up that final battle. Um, yeah, so here's Austin Crockett in a coonskin hat, um, Bowie with his Bowie knife, um, and then we have uh, the... A precipitating event um, and then uh, we have the uh, grandfather the other character who um, a veteran of the war of 1812 who kisses the flag while his while he cries and his daughter holds him and then when Santa Ana enters the story again um, as depicted in the film he's just ridiculous and in this narrative he's a hopeless opium addict a drug fiend, I think, is the way they use it um, one time. And then he's definitely opium. When we first meet him in uh, the encampment in his tent, he's so high and surrounded by women. The title tells us in this title, title card tells us that um, he's um, involved right that moment in an orgy. And apparently he always is either um, both high on opium and doing orgies all day this guy every day uh, given how he's depicted in the film a strong this dictator and despot one would wonder how he could possibly be both all of these things and um anyway effective the titular moment is of course the battle of the alamo and it is also ridiculous it's really this cinema cinematic element it's just stunning it's strangely weirdly almost uncannily um, amazing like how is this possible variety I mean I've seen a lot of silent movies of the era none look anything like this I mean this is really in terms of technical artistic um, way ahead of its time he's clearly a genius a dangerous hateful KKK reviving genius but it's art and it's historical um, and it's a touchstone text Okay, so there's a lot more. You know what happens. The small band kicks ass, um, fights bravely. The famous um, uh, letter from Travis is then handed to Silent Smith, quote unquote. We need some troops. Um, yeah, Houston says, nah, um, he doesn't give a shit. And then they internally double down. They know they're not going to win. Mexican soldiers eventually breach the structure and begin pouring in. The liberty loving white men then whisk away the children and the women to safety somewhere deep in the bowels of the 
Alamo. I don't have any idea where this might be. Maybe that's where um, Pee Wee Herman's bike is hidden. Remember, it's supposed to be in the quote unquote basement of uh, uh, the Alamo and Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Oh, I really want to see that again. That was eighth grade for me when that came out. Um, so when they whisk everybody away, the children and the women, for some reason, they miss a child. And this is, I think, the most um, uh, gruesome and painful moment. This cherub-like toddler with, of course, this massive golden curls um, pulls back into a corner and just watches um, for several minutes. The camera uh, go is, you know, close in on this child's face. Um, we see the, you know, he's scared and confused and they... Uh, watching this active uh, fight scene that goes, the camera goes back and forth between uh, the child and the fight and back and forth. At some point, um, the assumption on the part of the audience, I'm assuming, is that the heroes, white heroes, will discover that this child's not with the rest of the women and children to save them, or that the child will just wait it out unnoticed in this dark corner. But another option happens, a sort of shocking, horrific turn of events that was far more horrific than I had been dreading. A Mexican soldier um, finds this child uh, hiding in the corner, grabs the child by the neck, and then just pulls them up and flings them hard against the wall. We know immediately the soldier killed the child, and the soldier doesn't really even seem to care about the child. It's like it's as though the child were in the way. Like it was, he, the child was no threat. He just grabbed him like a sack of potatoes or some other inanimate um, object and uh, that might be blocking the path and then just kept going. So um, the movie goes on well past the Alamo, which is an uncommon thing for these Alamo movies. But um, I'll stop there and just sort of take us through the end moments of the, of the movie. So Houston falls with the black, um, um, oops. While the more violence would have killed Santa Ana, Houston saw that he must live for the future of Texas. This is after the final battle. And here he is, uh, Houston is wanting to write a letter um, to me, for me. Santa Ana is just so confused and dazed, um, probably high. Um, surrounded by fur-hatted um, patriots. And I guess he's bowing uh, in concession, and he's also um, looking a little sick. And thus, on May 14, 1836, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, president of Mexico, signed the treaty acknowledging Texas free and independent. And there we have the signing happening with um, Houston with his little mutton chops, um, dipping the feather into the ink. Um, and Santa Ana just really doesn't want to get that. Um, uh, then he sighs begrudgingly and actually signs at last. Um, Houston rolls his eyes in relief, wrapped in a blanket. Santa Ana looks sick. Um, this, uh, Texas soldiers now from the Republic of Texas surrounding him um, make sure that he uh, leaves in an orderly way. 
and the I assume uh, yeah then these two guys just look um, at the treaty it goes black while some hearts felt this coming joys uh, while some hearts felt the coming joys of future or future joys um, these other two um, these are uh, the wives who lost uh, the fallen soldiers they're told they uh, by quote-unquote silent smith and they hug each other and um, feel the pain of the loss in the same ways that um, we might um, be told that the survivors that the civil war the sole surviving window widow could not forget at what price this came and she walks off into the trees holding her face um uh, realizing looks into the camera with sad eyes um and uh the other two hold each other and now we go black i think for the final time but on the martyrdom of those fallen heroes was built the quote lone star state the flags of texas and this is the final moment we have the flags the spanish flag 1824 i'm sorry the um Mexican flag. And now we have the Lone Star flag, the same one we see flying, even though it wouldn't have been available until a few years later. And then we morph lovingly into the Confederate flag. Again, not the one that would have been flown, but the ones that we see in the, all over um, in um, trucks and so forth. And now we are in the American flag, the one that um, the older soldier wraps himself with you fear you hear the music swell while we're looking at the american flag and then it fades out and now the final trademark card from our um amazing fellow um in this wildly powerful movie Okay, so this uh, final bit is a fireside chat, an interview with um, D.W. Griffith that um, uh, I think really helps bring it home. Um, the opening title heart, the prelude to our picture, and this is the new release in the 30s, is the record of an intimate conversation between Mr. D.W. Griffith and his friend, Mr. Walter Huston, which occurred on an evening. I mean, obviously giving me time to read, um, an evening in the spring of 1930. Here for the first time, Mr. Griffith relates the colorful childhood experience which led him to the making of the birth of a nation. All right, so um, first, uh, we have some moments that are um, just dripping with, um, you know, sentimentality. Um, so you know that some of the, that um, rapping and crying into the flag kind of stuff is like in his heart um, for the Confederacy. Um, first, kind of to give it a little flavor, often the, the guys are hanging out near the fireplace. Um, uh, Griffith is on the chair, he's um, packing his pipe with tobacco, and on the edge are some children's voices you're going to hear, the children at the door looking in. 
they are for some reason desperate to hear this conversation between these two older men smoking pop pipes near the fireplace the youngest one kind of with a shirley temple voice asks is he all right um meaning like are these people okay i mean are they should they be in the house and so forth and then her buddy says sure he's cool he made that awesome kkk love fest after all what better person than uh than that to creep on and so they creep closer um and at last we are at this conversation and so uh here's your present friends are they in there smoke oh thank you so I can see better. Is that D.W. Griffith? Yes. Where'd you find that thing? It lights. Looks all right, doesn't he? Sure, he's all right. He made the birth of a nation. Oh, that other man's Walter Houston. I wish we could hear better. I saw him in a picture once and he's pretty good. Come on, we will hear better. Is it generally known that you're a southerner? <laughs> I should think it should be. It's been advertised enough. Yes, my father was a colonel in the Confederacy. Have you got a penny? Penny? What do you want with a penny? I'm going to give you a present. It's a sharp gift. Let's see. I'll have to look. No, I'm rich. I've only got a dime. A couple of them. I'll take both of them. Say, you don't, say, you don't care what you do with my money, do you? How do I know your present's worth the two dimes? Well, I think you'll like it. It's an old army saber, worn by a Confederate officer. Well, thank you, Walter. I like that. My father wore a sword like that. Now I want to ask you a question. Far ahead. When you made the birth of a nation, did you tell your father's story? Oh, no, no, I don't think so. Well, after you mention it, perhaps I did. How long did it take you? Say, so you ask more questions. How long does it take to make anything? I suppose, oh, I suppose it began when I was a child. I used to get under the table and listen to my father and his friends talk about the battles they'd been through and their struggles. And those things impressed you deeply. And I suppose that got into the birth. You, uh, you feel as though it were true? Yes, I feel so. True is that... Blade. Oh, that's natural enough, you know, when you've heard your father tell about fighting day after day, night after night, and having nothing to eat but parched corn, and about your mother staying up night after night sewing robes for the clan. The clan at that time was needed and served a purpose. Yes, I think it's true. 
Heard it, Pontius Pilate said, Truth? What is the truth? Well, it has stood the test of time. Still considered to be the best picture that was ever made. Thank you. make you feel proud. Well, thank you very much for that. If I thought you really thought it was the best picture ever made, I would be tempted to be a little proud. But I don't know. You never get into those things, you know. You never get into those things, the uh, things that you expect to get and want to get. But it, it, it had the fury of life in it. I mean, it, it made your blood, oh, made your blood tingle. Well, maybe there was something in it, but I don't think it, I deserve the credit. It was about something. You can tell easily a story about something. It was about a tremendous struggle. It's about a story of people that were fighting desperately against great odds, great sacrifices, suffering, death. It was a great struggle, a great story. A story where young girls used to wear cotton or ermine and where the boys imagined. You ever read about uh, Pickett's Charge in Gettysburg? Hmm. Beautiful thing. There were boys there. Like in many a battle. When the fathers dropped the guns, these nothing but children picked them up and went on fighting. And they fought to the bitter end. Hmm. It's easy enough to tell that kind of a story. All you have to do is anybody can do that. It's the story itself that tells itself. But were conditions in the South after the war as bad as you pictured them? You mean concerning the rule of the carpetbaggers and the Negroes? Yes. I just happen to have a volume of Woodrow Wilson. Do you ever read what he has to say about it? Somewhere I've got it marked here. I'm just going to let you read it. I'll read it out loud, if you don't mind. Adventures swarmed out of the North as much the enemies of one race as the other, to cousin, beguile, and use the Negroes. In the villages, the Negroes were the office holders, men who knew none of the uses of authority except its insolences. The policy of the congressional leaders wrought a veritable overthrow of civilization in the South, in the determination to put the white South under the heel of the black South. Hmm. The white men were roused by a mere instinct of self-preservation until at last there had sprung into existence a great Ku Klux Klan, a veritable empire of the South, to protect the southern country. Rather true, it sounds, doesn't it? Very unusual thing. 